0: Today's episode of Lions of Liberty is sponsored by Ammo.com. And if you've ever wanted to save money purchasing ammunition while helping a libertarian cause, well, this is your lucky day because, you see, Ammo.com is run by fans of this program, fellow liberty lovers like yourself, and they want to give back to Lions of Liberty fans by offering $20 off any order over $200. Not only that, but they will redirect 1% of every sale to a pro-freedom organization such as the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the Institute of Justice, and many more. Not only can you save money, but you can rest well knowing you are supporting a great liberty cause. So head on over to ammo.com slash Liberty, or just click the link conveniently located over at today's show notes over at lionsofliberty.com slash seven.
1: Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire.
0: Roar, 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 roar. That's me roaring. That's how I feel like roaring today by just saying the word roar. <laughs> I'm weird, guys. If you don't know that by now, I don't know what you're doing here. Welcome back to Lions of Liberty, the flagship program here at the Lions of Liberty podcast, the show I have been doing for over five years, interviewing leaders and assorted other very smart people in the libertarian movement, like the one you're going to hear today. But it's not just me here on Lions of Liberty. I've also got some compatriots in Liberty, my friends, Brian McWilliams, who brings you Electric Liberty Land, his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty, every single wednesday and john odermatt wraps things up every friday with his weekly look at the broken criminal justice system and the compelling amazing, incredible stories of overcoming adversity that he's been presenting on Felony Friday. These are all the reasons you got to hit that subscribe button so you get all the shows here. And of course, tomorrow, we're going to be wrapping up the temporary show we've been doing called Candidates of Liberty. I've got my final episode running tomorrow, an interview with Carla Garrick, who's running for New Hampshire State Senate. Be sure to check that out. And the fate of that show will be... TBD. I don't know where it's going to go from there. We would like to do some follow-ups on the candidates we interviewed, and we may bring it back down the future. It all really just depends on the feedback we get. And of course, the more feedback we get on Patreon (laughs) via your donations, The more that we can do extra programming like that. So please do check out our Patreon over at patreon.com slash lions of liberty. We've been doing a ton of extra content, of course. We have the Conspiracy Corner show. We have Degenerate Gamblers, which is about 2% gambling, 98% ridiculous stories. And we've got the League of Liberty with myself, Roger Paxton, Johnny Adams, Chris Spangle, just a plethora of assorted programming. Of course, now Brian McWilliams is also doing South Park recaps with our good friend Dan Smotts of The System down podcast just an unbelievable amount of content you can get for joining the pride for as little as five dollars a month please do check that out over at patreon.com slash lions of liberty i am done plugging let's get to today's show All right, my guest today is a free market economist, consultant, and author of several books, including The Politically Incorrect Guide to Capitalism and Choice, Cooperation, Enterprise, and Human Action. He is most recently the author of the book Contra Krugman, Smashing the Errors of America's Most Famous Keynesian. He is, of course, also the co-host of the podcast by the same name, Contra Krugman, along with our good friend Tom Woods. Very pleased to welcome back Robert Murphy. Robert, are you ready to roar? Wow, that was something else. (laughs) I don't know if that was more like a purr than a roar.
1: I was doing a Roy Orbison.
0: Yeah, not bad, not bad, Robert. And now, Bob, you first appeared on this program way back in episode thirty-five. And believe it or not, we the audience has actually grown quite a bit since then. We have over three hundred and seventy episodes of this main Lions of Liberty podcast at this point. So, why don't we just start off with a quick recap of just kind of how you got here? How did you first take interest in in free market economics in general, and I guess a little more specifically Austrian economics?
1: Sure. So, I think it all started when I was in like eighth grade, or maybe. Freshman year of high school, my dad was listening to Rush Limbaugh on the radio. And so if he was driving me somewhere, I would hear that. And that was where I first got the idea of you could criticize a government proposed program by saying it won't achieve its desired purpose. And I know that sounds really obvious, but I literally had never encountered that notion before. And so then I started looking at people who called themselves conservatives, but I noticed that the ones that I really liked were like Walter Williams and Thomas Sowell you know, for the economics. And then, of course, I, the more I studied, I realized, actually, I'm not conservative. I'm a libertarian. And I really was in the economics more than the, you know, social stuff. And I think Henry Hazlitt's economics in one lesson was pretty soon in, in my journey. He mentioned this guy Ludwig von Mises in there. I somehow discovered Rothbard. So I think I read Milton Friedman first, you know, and I liked it. But then when I found Rothbard, I was like, okay, this guy, you know, he's a very clear writer and it seemed like he was more consistent in terms of if this is what my framework is and we just, you know, follow those ideas as their logical conclusion. When I first read Rothbard and I realized he was an anarcho-capitalist, I thought that was kind of nutty. Like I was amused by it, but I thought, oh, come on, that wouldn't work. And so then it was by college is when I was fully on board with that. But as of a senior year in high school, I was reading human action, not saying I understood it all. And I said, okay, I want to be a college professor and teach Austrian economics for my career. That, that's what I thought as of high school. And so that's why I went to Hillsdale College, which is where Mises' personal library was kept. So yeah, it was a went from being free market economist. And then just the more I studied, I, I thought the Austrians were the most consistent and the clearest writers. And so that's why I went to that angle or went to that school.
0: I gather that, you know, universities aren't exactly chomping at the bit out there to find Austrian economists to bring into the, to their economics department. <laughs> How did you find trying to pursue a career sort of on that end of things?
1: It keeps getting better, believe it or not. So, yes, it is true that when I was first doing it, like when I was in grad school, there were two schools of thought. And one school was to say, hey, if you're a budding young Austrian economist and you're getting a PhD in economics, just keep that to yourself, you know, so have it so that your papers on your, you know, CV which is like the academic's analog of a resume, you know, listing your papers and stuff, you know, make it look like it's totally mainstream and whatever. Then once you get tenure somewhere, then you want to start writing on Ashers of go ahead. So that was one school of thought, but then even back then, you know, I'm not that old. This would be like the early 2000s where, you know, I was in grad school and was hearing these different forms of advice. But even back then some people were saying, "You know, number one, you're just going to be miserable. Just do what you love and don't try to, you know, be so strategic about it." But also the idea was, look, there's a few places where they are friendly to Austrian economics. And so you have to show those people who you are. Otherwise, they won't know, you know, they won't be able to find you. And so, but this, that process has continued. More Austrians get placed somewhere. And then, you know, if they're on a hiring committee or something, they can kind of try to try to move you to the front of the pack. And there's, you know, where I am right now, Texas Tech, we have the Free Market Institute, which is very friendly to the Austrians. There's plenty of card-carrying Austrians on our faculty, Obviously, George Mason's another, and other... And these are PhD-granting institutions. And then at the un, just, you know, regular, more liberal arts colleges, there's places like Hillsdale, Grove City. So it's you're right, it's, there still is an, an upward battle or, or fight, but it's much better now than it used to be. So at this point, for someone to be... It used to be that it was like the kiss of death if you were an Austrian for your career. Now I say that's
0: more like just chopping your left arm off. <laughs> right. It's still a bit of a battle, but you, you can work your way in there. And what exactly... I guess, differentiates Austrian economics from more mainstream economic point of views for people that might not be, you know, as familiar with the term? So, I mean, do
1: you want me to distinguish, like, as opposed to the Chicago school, which is also free market?
0: Sure. I mean, I guess from the approach of someone who might just be tuning into the show for the first time and is kind of just learning about libertarianism, why does this term Austrian economics matter? You know, what what's so different about it that we should be paying attention?
1: Yeah. And so I do want to be clear that it is a distinctive school. It's not merely like, oh, I don't like the government. And so and the Austrians agree. And so that's why... Because even within the free market economist community, there's the Chicago School of economics that, like Milton Friedman, embodied, and then the Austrian School. So we, they would agree on things like they'd be opponents of Keynesian fiscal policy, right? So to say, oh, if there's a recession, the Keynesians would say the government needs to run a budget deficit, let's say, especially if interest rates are really low. Whereas both the Chicago School and the Austrians think that's a bad idea, but. The Austrians, in terms of just their analytical style and what their content is, to me the big difference that, and I'll just summarize for you here because of your question, is that the the Austrian understanding of money and banking and what causes the business cycle. And so the Austrians, their if you want to say model of the economy is pretty rich and it has what's called a capital structure. So the idea is like there's different stages of production, like mining is something that you know bringing minerals to the surface or whatever that's important, but that's not going to turn into a consumer good until down the road. So it's like mining and processing and manufacturing and retail and then consumption. So the economy is broken up into stages and there's long projects and shorter term projects and the interest rate is sort of what regulates the flow of resources to the different stages of production. So if the community becomes more patient and is willing to wait longer for enjoyments they save a higher fraction of their income that pushes down interest rates. And then that gives a signal to entrepreneurs to invest resources in longer term projects that, you know, they're not going to bear their fruit right away in terms of goodies like TVs or sports cars, but the economy will be more productive. So we'll get more TVs, but we'll have to wait longer for them. That's kind of the trade-off. So in the Austrian vision, the interest rate is sort of what regulates that makes sure the entrepreneurs are investing resources and projects that match with the public's, desired flow of enjoyment over time. And so if that's, you know, if you buy that basic story, okay, then with the central bank or just the banking system in general, if they push interest rates artificially low, then that causes an unsustainable boom that, you know, it's giving the wrong signal to entrepreneurs. They're investing in these long-term projects. They're trying to hire workers, but there's not more actual saving. And so the restaurants and the, you know, best Buy selling TVs and computer games, they're still doing brisk business And you've got the entrepreneurs trying to invest in these long-term projects. So at that point, it's a boom. Like, every, you know, the unemployment's really low. Everybody seems to be making money. And it's great. But physically, that's unsustainable. That just because the central bank prints up a bunch of money and lowers interest rates, it's not like there's more actual machinery or tools to go around. And so that unsustainable economy goes along for a bit. And people are living in this illusion. And then ultimately reality sets in, and that's what we call the recession. So that's the Austrian, in a nutshell, explanation of the boom-bust cycle. And I think that fits the facts better, like the recent housing boom and bust. Like I think the Austrian story has some implications about what the numbers would look like that I think qualitatively at least match the data, whereas even the Chicago school, they don't have that sort of approach. The Chicago school, for example, says, oh, the reason we had the Great Depression." was that the Fed just inexplicably tightened in the late twenties and then in the early thirties when there were bank runs, the Fed should have been creating a bunch of money and they didn't because we were still on the gold standard. And so there, you know, ironically, the Chicago approach would say oh, the Great Depression was caused by inadequate intervention by the Federal Reserve. Whereas the Austrians say, no, it was the twenties, had this unsustainable bubble. And then, you know, the Hoover administration just made things worse. So that that's one huge difference in and why so many of us aren't just free market economists, but Austrians in particular. Like I think their understanding of how an economy works is much more nuanced and accurate
0: it's funny because many people who aren't really in the weeds on this stuff on the Austrian economic stuff they would likely associate the Chicago school and, and Milton Friedman more with like free market economics but even in that context the Chicago school fully supports the concept of a central bank and, and as you said one of their criticisms was the actions of the central bank not you know in the when it, as it relates to the Great Depression not the existence of it so do you think that's what you know one of the main things that differentiates the Austrians from other schools is be, really being against the idea of a Central bank overall,
1: yeah, I think so. And again, it's you know it it goes back to do I say like the internal consistency of it that it is. uh, So the Austrians like just like I said, does there need to be some cartel of oil producers? And there's a central committee that sets crude oil prices. And the Austrians, of course, not. Just like the you know Chicago School would say, of course not. But then, yeah, when it comes to money and banking, the Chicago School is much more sympathetic to. Oh yeah, there should be a cartel of banks and some central politically appointed committee that sets interest rates. Yeah, sure. Why not? So in fairness, later on, Friedman had some doubts and, you know, he had different proposals. But yes, you're exactly right that the Chicago school is much more open to the idea that, well, as long as the as it was run by the right people, a central bank could actually improve upon a decentralized market in
0: money and banking. Just got to get those right folks in there, you know? Now, so what is the big deal with this Paul Krugman guy? We hear so much about this guy. He's one of the most world-renowned economists to the point that I guess it's probably fair to say that you've become pretty obsessed with his work at this point, having the podcast and the book and everything. When did you first, you know, I guess, become interested in the work of Paul Krugman? I guess interested is, uh, you know, taken a certain way there. And, you know, why is he so revered? Why is he so renowned as as sort of someone to look to for economic wisdom, I guess you might say, by, by many in the mainstream?
1: So Krugman's a really sharp guy. I mean, let's just be clear about that. And he's a good writer. He's he's very clear. He can take economic, you know, esoteric economic things or something where you would to really understand like someone's journal article in an economics journal, you would need to know a bunch of math and also have studied other economic models to even know what the heck the guy was saying. Krugman's pretty good at taking something like that and then paraphrasing it or putting it in plain English, you know, in a column, the New York Times, for example. So he's really good with that. And believe it or not, people don't know this, but as of the late 1990s, even, I mean, Krugman, I believe, was always a Democrat, at least in you know his adult life and would, would be on the liberal side of the political spectrum. But he was not like a, a far left guy by any stretch. And in fact, you know, his, his main academic work was on trade theory, like international trade. And he was a proponent of free trade and would spend a lot of his time in terms of his essays intended for the general public. Sort of debunking mercantilist ideas, or when somebody like even Robert Reich came out, you know, and was uh, critical of trade deals and things in the nineties, Krugman was pretty critical, kind of like you don't even know what you're talking about. Like, at least learn our stuff before you throw it out the window, you know, that kind of attitude. And then at some point, I don't know what the exact timeline was, but he had a column for the New York Times. You know, he had being this you know, famous economist writing. And then it was in the George W. Bush administration that I think you can really see Krugman sort of got weaponized, as it were, and just, you know, and I under, and the particular issue was the the invasion of Iraq, which, you know, good, okay, that's, that is something that would really make you get hardened and cynical. And then so, so his writing, I think, took a, a more strident tone, like he wasn't just the economist coming in and informing the public, and maybe having a saucy line or two, it turned more into like a real political foe and that I got to wake people up to the evils of this administration. Again, I get why that would, you know, you, especially if you had been a liberal, why you would hate the George W. Bush administration. And then, and so he just kept ramping it up the tone and so forth. So I think he started gaining a following and I think he realized, okay, I've done the academic stuff and now this is kind of fun for me to be a public intellectual. And I think he realized that when you're in the punditry game you know, people know who Ann Coulter or Sean Hannity are. They don't know who are the people who are much more civil, right? In other words, to get famous and to get a big following, you have to be the most of whatever it is that you are. And so I think he just started playing with that and realizing, yeah, I don't, I don't care. People think I'm you know, out of line. I don't care. Or I'm in civil. So what?
0: It's funny that the Iraq war would be what gets him fired up because based on a lot of the things you hear him saying nowadays, from an economic perspective, you think he would love the Iraq war because any kind of huge government expenditure, according to his views now, is basically just a wonderful thing that will help us all, except, I guess, the dead people.
1: Yeah, well, he did. I mean, it's funny you say it because yeah, he did after 9-11, like within the next week or something, he had a column in the New York Times saying he didn't literally say, I'm glad that happened or it's a good thing that that happened. But he did say little things along the lines of, well, you know, we've needed an economic stimulus for a while and the Bush administration certainly wasn't going to give it to us. But so the silver lining on the, you know, the cloud of this tragedy is that at least now this should, you know, stimulate investment and blah, blah, blah. So he did tiptoe up to, you know, saying that, yes, the economic benefits of this attack are, you know, will, will manifest themselves. So just to finish that, so he he wins the Nobel Prize, I think he won it in, it was either 2008 or 2009 for his work on trade theory. But a lot of people thought that that was, you know, sort of rewarding him and elevating him because of his work in, you know, being a staunch opponent of George W. Bush. And so and the thing I could problem with him is that he flipped on a dime. He didn't mention a word about Obama's foreign policy. And so it's as opposed to someone like Glenn Greenwald, who was a huge critic of the Bush administration in terms of civil liberties and whatever, plus, you know, the wars. But then Greenwald was consistent. So when the Obama administration kept doing, you know, detention policies, whatever, then Greenwald, so, so that's fine. But Krugman stopped doing that. As to why he's such a big deal and why do I focus him. So it's, again, for someone who was going to make the case for Keynesian interventionist policies you know, to steer the economy to improve upon the free market, Krugman at that point had a Nobel Prize, so he had a lot of credibility. And again, he was a very clear writer. So it was like he would articulate precisely the case for what he was doing. So if you disagreed with it, he was a great person to grab and say, this is what their case is. Now let me pick it apart. So that's why I started following his stuff. And then, yeah, at some point, I just noticed because I had started reading it and because he was so strident, like Krugman, for those who don't know his work, it's not merely that he disagrees with his opponents. He literally says the reason, like, for example, people oppose Obamacare is because they don't want black people to get health care. Like he literally says that it's not you know it's not even innuendo. So
0: right, it's it's far beyond an, an economic breakdown at this point. It's all of his 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 analysis is really filled with just so much hyperbolic rhetoric that it's hard to just I guess when, maybe someone like yourself to just see that stuff and just let it go without being challenged.
1: And over the years, I think he's gotten worse on that. So it's true. It, so for people who like recently have dabbled and looked at some improvement stuff, they say you know Bob, why are you and Tom talking about Tom Woods? They got my co-host for the, our podcast you know, why why do you guys waste your time with this? And to be fair, if Krugman wrote all throughout as he's been writing the last few years, it's possible we wouldn't have because he's just so often nowadays, his columns, you wouldn't even know he was an economist. Like he just, you know, he just said, Oh, I don't like something. So it should be illegal or the government, you know, without doing a marginal benefit, marginal cost framework, the way an economist would. So I do see that, but I think he's gotten worse over the years. In the beginning, he did At least go through the motions of trying to say, ah, using economic theory, here's why my ideas make sense. And this is why the Democrat politician has a better case here than the Republican opponent. Whereas now it is straight from that, I think. I think now he just wants to be the cool guy catering to a progressive left readership.
0: So how did you go from just being sort of a, a here and there critic of Krugman to basically making this your, your full-time thing between the weekly podcast with, with Tom Woods and uh, you know, the book coming out now? How did it escalate to this point? I do believe it took a little bit of prodding from your co-host.
1: Right. So for various online venues where you know, I had a, a writing position, most notably Mises.org for the website for the Mises Institute, over the years... I would write, you know, when Krugman would write a particularly juicy column, especially like if he touched on Austrian economics, I would write a response and then, you know, post it at these places. So over time, I started building up this body of work. And then also I just have a good memory. And so I was able to, it was kind of a self-reinforcing thing that once I kind of was like the person in the free market Austrian camp who really was an expert on Krugman's stuff. Then anytime he came out with something new, people would send it to me like, oh, Bob, you got to hit this. And then, and so I was pretty good at like saying, oh, Krugman says this now, but actually back in May of 2012, he said such and such, you know, that kind of thing. And so it just kind of built on itself. Like it became my unofficial duty to kind of keep tabs on Krugman just because I already had this work I had put in ahead of time just because I was reading him as a hobby almost. So then at some point, yeah, Tom Woods calls me up and he says, Bob, I got an idea, but before you say no, let me just at least get it all out. So he was already primed to think you
0: were going to want to shoot this down.
1: Yes, I was in a parking lot because I remember I parked and I'm sitting there on the phone, you know, in the parked car, the parking spot. And he says, you know, we we should have a weekly podcast where we take Krugman's column and we just go through and critique it. And that's what the show is. This is a weekly podcast that we just take Krugman's latest column and go through and critique it from an Austrian perspective. And my initial reaction was, no, I don't want to do that because I thought, number one, that would like sort of you know, pigeonhole me or whatever as being just like, Oh yeah, he's that guy that hates Krugman. Like that would be how I'd be defined for the, you know, for everybody. But also I thought, you know, are we going to give Krugman this platform and we're always responding to him and that, you know, doesn't that give him too much power? You know, that, that kind of thing. But what turned me around is this Tom kept elaborate. I don't think that I said to him, no, I think I, my internal reaction was no, but then i let him continue as he wanted. And he was just, he kind of just convinced me, about how many people would love that podcast. And and I realized he was right that even though I was kind of the one doing that regularly in terms of when Krugman would come out with something, I would go critique it. There were other people doing that stuff too. Like I remember Scott Sumner also was really good at taking something Krugman wrote last week and then saying, well, wait a minute, in the late nineties, he said the exact opposite, you know, or quoting from his textbook to show. So, and I, those were always my favorite things to see when some other economist would catch Krugman contradicting himself or whatever you know, that I hadn't realized. And so I thought, okay, yeah, if that's my favorite thing to read, if we're pumping out this podcast, there's gonna be lots of economists and just the general public who can't stand Krugman, they are going to think this is hilarious. So yes, it was Tom's idea. And I initially was skeptical, but on that phone call, he convinced me and that's how we, that's how it started.
0: Hey guys, this is Roger Paxton. And if you're fed up with the government running every single aspect of your life, but you're not listening to the Lava Flow podcast yet, then what's wrong with you? Check us out at thelavaflow.com or just go back to sucking up to the government. The Lava Flow podcast, striking the root every single episode. This is Chris Spangle, and I am the host of We Are Libertarians, which you can find in iTunes, Google Play, or at WeAreLibertarians.com. We are a podcast that brings you all of the irreverence that modern politics deserves by examining current events from a libertarian perspective. So please, check us out at We Are those dry, boring, run-of-the-mill political talk shows putting you to sleep on your commute or at work? Are you ready for some fun? <laughs> Always launching ideas in your direction. <laughs> You know, it's one thing to, I guess, just sort of disagree with a lot of mainstream economic views. But as you mentioned before, Krugman has just gotten to a point where he just says things that are just completely absurd, completely over the top, completely disconnected, often from even even the actual economics that he does purport to believe. I'm curious if anything stands out in your mind right now, of, of all these years that you've been following his work and criticizing him, of what are some of the most ridiculous things that, that he has put out there? I mean, obviously, the one that stands out the most to me that a lot of people are aware of is when he he sort of called for like a building up for a fake alien invasion and just spending all the money as if we were going to battle aliens. But then I guess, you know, maybe if the aliens show up, great. I guess we're ready for it. And if not, well, we just spent all this money. And how could that be a bad thing?
1: And by the way, kudos to you. for You you correctly expressed his position. A lot of people will say, oh, Krugman was hoping for an alien invasion. Which technically, no, he was saying, I wish the public would erroneously think aliens were coming so that we would build up the weapons and then not need him. So that's not the same thing as saying, I wish aliens would attack us.
0: He's not lusting for interspatial war. He just wants us to be prepared for prepared
1: it. Prepared for it unnecessarily, yes. So, so, yeah, you're exactly right. And people don't know what we're talking about. Go to YouTube and check it out. Just If you just type in Krugman Alien Invasion, it'll probably be the top
0: hit. The videos out there are pretty funny, too, because a lot of them are all you know doctored up with you know creepy music and stuff like that.
1: So, yes, the, that's... Oh, and by the way, going back to, you know, why did I pick Krugman initially just as my foil, because he was good like that, where he wouldn't shy away from taking his own. It, just like I like Rothbard to say, hey, if it makes sense to privatize stuff and Monopoly is bad, why should we let the state run the court system or the police or even the military and sort of pushing that logic? And yeah. And, and even though that does strike a lot of people as insane, Rothbard didn't care. He's just, you know, this is what I think is right. And, you know, over time, he convinced me. Same thing with Krugman. He will to make sure people get the point. He will give an exaggeration or, of you know, or, or take his idea to the logical limits. Like in this case, yes, Krugman will because what the context of that was, he was on a panel with Rogoff, I think, an, an economist, I think from Harvard, who was calling for government stimulus. So this was after the financial crisis. This was like 2010 or something, where you know there was still high unemployment, and Keynesian economists wanted the government to run a budget deficit to create jobs and boost GDP. And so the Fareed guy, I forget his last, the, the CNN host had these two economists on his panel and the Rogoff guy was calling for stimulus, but he said something like, no, but we're going to be careful with, it. it's going to be smart stimulus. You know, we're not going to have like these big, dig projects with cost overruns. And then the host knew enough Keynesian economics to go, well, wait a minute, what, what does it matter if it's, if it's overpriced? Isn't the whole point just to spend money and that if we get bridges or something, that's a bonus. And so that then crewman was agreeing with the host and realized, ah, yes, you've seen the light, my son. And then said, yes, so, you know, the limit if the public, you know, right. Because the, the problem was the public was too timid. They were being scared by these Republicans who were warning about big debt and whatever. And so Krugman was saying, too bad. You know, it, it would be great if the public thought there was going to be an alien invasion so that they would say to their leaders, yeah, go ahead and run big deficits. I don't care about the budget right now. We got to get ready for the space invasion and spend a bunch of money on weapons that then it would turn out we didn't need them. So, yeah, that was the that was the full. So, again, there that shows why Krugman is a good foil because he's not afraid to take his idea. you know. In other words, you don't need to do a reductio ad absurdum. He does it to himself. Another one, just to show his hypocrisy and how, because that's the thing, it, it would be one thing, like somebody like a Noam Chomsky, where I disagree strongly with a lot of his views, but I think he's pretty like internally consistent and he's certainly not like a shill for the Democratic Party per se. At least I've never seen him be that. Maybe someone else knows his work better, but to me it seems like, okay, he's this, left-wing intellectual and has some pretty strange views on certain things and other things I do agree with him on. But Krugman is a shill for the Democratic Party and not even for like Bernie Sanders, for, like for Hillary Clinton. That's the thing. He's like a shill for like the centrist mainstream establishment candidates, but they have to be Democrats. And so the hilarious flip-flop for him was he kept ridiculing people who were warning about deficits, people who you know were worried about interest rates skyrocketing and that kind of stuff for years and years and years. When Hillary Clinton looked like she was going to win the election in 2016, he was still, you know, saying when, when the Clinton administration comes in, you know, they should have big spending and did investment programs, da, 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 all this stuff. Trump wins. And then the literally, the, like, I think it was in January, Krugman's column was deficits matter again. That was the title they gave. And he was
0: just because of who's in office.
1: And so it was—so, of course, Krugman didn't say, oh, because the Republicans in the White House, now I care about deficits. That's not obviously what he said. He listed objective changes and, you know, saying under Obama, the economy was like such and such, but now the economy is like this and that, and that's why it's different and why my policy prescriptions—but the things he listed as to what had changed had been true six months earlier when he was still saying when Clinton gets in the White House, what she needs to do is da 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 you know, so— It just showed that to me, that's classic Krugman where he flip flops. It's clearly because of a political reason, but then he can come up with some objective thing. But then if you just look at it closely, you see it doesn't hold water.
0: Yeah, I guess that leads into directly into a question I kind of had on my mind that it was, you know, do you believe Krugman is a true believer or just kind of like a paid shill? Because it does seem like back in the day, he did have more, um, I guess, you know, logical economic views. And even if he didn't agree with them, they were more sort of civil and rational. And then he just became this sort of hyperbolic, hyper political figure. Do you think this is just something he sort of did on his own? Or, I mean, can we really dig into a conspiracy here and think that maybe he is literally sort of like a paid shill for the establishment and, and establishment politics and that sort of thing?
1: I think with Krugman, one way of gaining some insight is look at the when he tries to psychoanalyze his opponents and he attributes motivations to them, I think a lot of times that's his own confession, whether he's doing it subconsciously or not. And so for example, he'll go through and say things like, Now, these pundits for the right, you know, they'll spout all sorts of nonsense and they know nothing bad will happen to them. They're not going to lose their post. It's just a matter of being rewarded for having the right views and touting the right things, even though their views are demonstrably false and economic studies contradict them. There'll be no consequences for them career wise. And so they sit there. And to me, it's like, yes, that's exactly what Krugman's doing at this point. Like to give an example, when it comes to the minimum wage, there are studies that so it used to be like, let's say, by in the 1980s, whether you were a Democrat on the left or a Republican conservative on the right, if you were an economist, you probably thought that raising the minimum wage made it harder for teenage workers to get a job. And so you would probably say, if you're trying to help low-skill workers, jacking up the minimum wage isn't the way to do it. Like the, so that just kind of was understood. It is true in the 90s and beyond, some studies came out saying, you know what, maybe there's more leeway there than we thought. And so there were some academic peer-reviewed studies that would say, a modest hike in the minimum wage actually might not hurt teen employment that much. Okay. So, okay, fine. I have problems with those studies, but put that aside. So then progressives, as you know, have been pushing for like the fight for 15, meaning $15 an hour or even more. And so some, it was like Ezra Klein or Matt Iglesias, somebody like that one time had Krugman on and was interviewing him and said, you know, what about this, you know, fight for 15? What, what do you think? Is that going to hurt job growth? And Krugman said something like, "Well, you know, if you look at the latest academic studies, they show that you know this this warning about the minimum wage. So now we we could do this, and it was like, no, because the minimum wage was like seven dollars and change. So we go to fifteen would be a doubling. And so no, it's absolutely not true that the studies said you could double the minimum wage. Nothing bad would happen. They didn't say that at all. But yet, Krugman's actual statements, there wasn't a demonstrable falsehood. It was just extremely misleading what he said. And so that's that's kind of what I, when you ask my question, that's my response is that." I think he's careful to not say something that's demonstrably false. You know, he always gives us a little weasel words, but yet the impression any normal human would get is Krugman saying, don't worry, official economics approves what, you know, this policy measure is that the progressive left wants. And so that's, I think he gives cover. So I think he's doing what he accuses the right-wingers for the Heritage Foundation of doing That They give cover to Republican proposals that really are just about, you know, giving tax cuts to the rich. And yet these guys pretend it's going to stimulate growth. You know, they exaggerate the literature. And, and that's what what Krugman does from his point of view. So I think in his mind, it's all a big game. He thinks his opponents are lying through their teeth. And so I think in his mind, it's kind of like, yeah, i got to fight fire with fire. I'm doing it for the right reasons. And, you know, these measures would help the people I care about, help the poor and the disadvantaged. And so, yeah, if I'm a little bit misleading in my work, So what that, you know, it's it's for a good cause.
0: Yeah, he, he certainly is a, a shill for his side of things, but it seems like in that context, he has at least maybe convinced himself that he is so on the moral right side of things that it, he has carte blanche to say and write whatever he has to do to support that side. I doubt he's he's probably not getting secret briefcases full of cash just to write this stuff from anybody.
1: Oh, well, on that point. So, yeah, I agree. It's amazing. I hadn't even thought of this, but Tom and I one time had Lou Rockwell on as our guest on Contra Krugman. So our podcast is called Contra Krugman. I don't know if we, if we said that if. Initially. yes and lou rockwell was on one time and somehow we were talking about krugman and how he was just shilling for hillary like crazy like it was it was ludicrous and rockwell said well yeah but he because he wants to have a position in her administration and i was like oh duh and like once he said that everything made perfect sense krugman's already won the nobel prize he's already a public intellectual you know up there like he was even doing cameos in that one movie i forget which one it is now with the, with the heavy set kid i'm blanking on the kid's name but Anyway, it was, you know, Krugman was like cool enough now that he was doing cameos and hit movies that young kids would go see. So he already had that. he got his post. And so, yeah, what, what else is there? Oh, to get a post in an administration, you know, because Larry Summers had been in the Bill Clinton administration. Maybe I, Paul Krugman, can get appointed in the Hillary administration. So I think that's what he was angling for.
0: Get him to the Greek. He was in Get Him to the yes, Greek. Yes, exactly. a Hill, I believe. Yes, that was the guy were I was looking for. Time.
1: Yes. So anyway, that was... I think that's what what was going on. And so, yes. But in terms of getting paid too, I mean, he he does, <laughs> I, I wish I had the numbers at my fingertips, but he got offered. So he went and took a post at the City University of New York to teach a class on inequality. And the, the amount that he was getting paid, like in terms of the annual amount, divided by the number of classes he actually had to, to give, it was ludicrous. I, again, I don't remember the number, but it was something like $10,000 a lecture or something to teach about the evils of inequality. So it was just hilarious.
0: Bob, how aware, are you aware, I guess, of how aware Krugman is of your work? I know, I mean, even before the podcast, you had the whole debate challenge to, you know, raise like a $100,000 for a charity to debate him. That that debate never happened. But I got to think at this point, he's at least aware of the podcast and aware of the book to, to some extent.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, so yeah, he knew who I was. He's I think twice at least it has perched the New York Times, not in the op-ed, but in the like when he has you know the blog version. He's responded to me by name twice, but that was before the podcast. And then and he, and he was critical in the response, like I, you know I said something about Austrian business cycle theory, and then he went through and critiqued it. And then I got an inflation bet wrong, and then he you know named me to say you know that's why I, I'm you know, my moral failure that I got my economics wrong, and I'm still clinging to my right wing views, just showing what a what a hypocrite or a fool I am. So, and then, yeah, the debate challenge where that came from was this girl emailed me and said, Hey, I was at a Barnes and Noble or something like that. One of those bookstores and Krugman had been doing his book tour, I think for the book End this depression now that, that he had that came out soon after the financial crisis. And so she was in the audience. And during the Q and a, she said, Hey, Dr. Krugman, would you ever debate an Austrian economist on business cycle theory? Cause I know they disagree with you in terms of how to fix things. And she's so she's telling me in the email that he said something like, look, I know this is going to sound elitist, but no, I I'm not going to give them a platform like no serious economist. You know, they were big in the 30s. And then those events eclipsed them. that, you know, Hayek was big. But the events of the 1930s showed that
0: seems like a great opportunity to just wipe the floor with them and then put them to rest. Finally, with a public debate, that's that's the way I would. Right. So
1: that's what yes, that was his position. So then I said, OK, well, he's saying up front, no, I'm not going to bother debating these guys because nobody takes them for real. I realized, okay, I got to do something else, and so yeah, I had this idea for the debate challenge where I was asking my supporters. It, it was like a GoFundMe kind of thing, and we had this platform where it didn't ding your credit card; you just gave your information, your pledge.
0: I remember I even pledged to that back in the day, and I never got charged, so it's it's legit. And so it was like you know, so split so it was more than just your verbal pledge. Like in other words, it
1: did take your information, but it wasn't going to ding your card until the goal was hit. And so yeah, the idea was. and and I picked an actual New York city food bank and I called him up and I mean, it was like, I really did this. It wasn't a joke or a publicity stunt. I called him up and said, Hey, I'm doing this thing. Are you okay with that? And the guy was like, yeah, we'll take money. We don't care. And so it was named, so it was a New York city food bank that yes was going to get all this money if Krugman debated me and it did get up to over a hundred thousand dollars. And so what, so he wasn't publicly talking about it. Some guy, some caller, I guess, ambushed him. Krugman was on a radio show. And this is on, I I captured it, made a video and put it on YouTube if people
0: want to, yeah, well, we'll link to that in the show notes for for this show too. It's called Luke Paul's book, and
1: so it's funny that the, the guy, the, the caller, calls in and says, "Yeah, Doctor Krugman, there's this guy Bob Murphy who's got this debate challenge," and I was wondering, and Krugman's like, "This isn't going to be settled by who has the snappiest soundbite." So again, just you know, he's the serious intellectual and on this clown he, he's
0: above a, a debate of that sort even if it could raise money for whoever
1: right so that, yeah so that was so so yes he's so there he did he did so yes he knows who i am he has never officially acknowledged the existence of the contra krugman podcast though
0: so he's not coming on the cruise i guess is what you're telling me he would have to
1: pay like everyone else but yes so yeah it's it's that's the right play for him obviously he's much bigger than tom woods or me so for him to acknowledge our existences. Is-
0: I mean, it's the same reason that major party candidates don't debate third party candidates because it it doesn't serve them a benefit. It does. It would serve an intellectual benefit, perhaps. But that's not why they're really right. they, can only, just yeah, like-
1: they can only lose. Yeah. If Krugman debates me or acknowledges me, then if he blows us up, you know, his fans are like, oh, yeah, of course, because you're right. These guys are fringe idiots. Whereas we'll just quote that for the rest of time and, you know, keep bringing it up. So it's he's doing the right thing in terms of his career and whatever. It's just, yeah, that it, because the other thing that bothered me too is he, he was willing to debate Ron Paul. And that's, and that's the thing that I, I put that in the video, if the, well, I'll send you the link for, is that, you know, he did debate Ron Paul and he admitted in his, in his later the New York times, he's he kind of like was apologizing to his readers along the lines of now, why did I give this gold bug politician a platform by dignifying him with my debate? Well, cause I wanted to sell books. I don't remember those exact words, but clearly that's what he's saying. Like he's trying to be funny and self-deprecating or whatever. So that's why I, w- I was saying, yeah, so, okay, why don't you debate me then, Krugman, and sell a bunch of your books? What the heck?
0: Finally, Bob, what do you hope that libertarians and, and other free market advocates take from your work here, not just on the book Contra Krugman, the podcast by the same name? What is the point of all of this other than to you know just have fun doing a podcast and have fun criticizing Krugman? What do you really hope that people out there are able to take from all this work?
1: Sure. And so, yeah, just to be clear that we had the podcast and then Tom, it was his idea also. He said, Bob, why don't we make a book? A collection of some of your best criticisms over the, your written essays of Paul Krugman. So that yeah, the book is called Contra Krugman. It's at contrakrugmanbook.com dot com if you're interested. So yeah, I in all you know, Frank as I know we're we're joking around and such. But and Krugman is a, a fun guy to to attack just for his hypocrisy. But it really is is an opportunity to, to teach free market economics, especially from the Austrian position. And so there's a lot of stuff in this book where it's like especially in business cycle theory, that I really go through and show, okay, if the Keynesian framework is correct, if the reason we have a recession right now is just because people are afraid to spend, in which case the government running a big budget deficit might help, well, then this is what the data would look like. You'd see the retail would have fallen and such and such. If the Austrian story is right, though, then construction employment would have really taken a big hit and and durable capital goods would have taken a big hit, whereas retail would not so much have Taken a hit. And that's exactly what the data showed. Or another example, I think it was the top five states, this was as of like 2010, the top five states in terms of the fall in housing prices, for them were also the t- in the top five states in terms of the jump in unemployment rates. Okay, so if you thought that the problem was there had been too much investment in housing during the bubble years and that that was like a real male investment that needed time to be liquidated and workers need to get reallocated into different sectors that would be consistent with that. Whereas if it was just, oh, people panicked and so everyone just stopped spending, you wouldn't have thought it'd be concentrated in the states that had the biggest housing bubbles. You would just think generally employment would have fallen across the country more uniformly. So just going through and just showing that the actual data do back up the Austrian story. So again, for people who would like to get into more of the the weeds of that stuff and the details, this book lays all that stuff out. And there's lots of other Topics as well, particularly climate change economics, just to show because Krugman likes to write a lot on that as well. And again, it's not just, oh, Al Gore's running a hoax here. No, it's using the UN's own published summary of the literature. You can see that the stuff Krugman's saying is just demonstrably false.
0: Right. That's that's why I like uh, what I like about your approach to the climate change stuff is you don't try to get into science. You accept that, you know, we're going to just agree for the sake of the argument that the science is what everyone agrees. The science is what Paul Krugman says it is. Now let's break down his solutions from that point.
1: Right. And uh, and that's the thing. And I even had an article called something like Paul Krugman, environmentalist first, economist second, by which I was just showing, you know, he wasn't even trying to do things in a cost benefit framework the way so Someone like William Nordhaus, who just won the Nobel Prize in economics and actually was Krugman's mentor on this stuff. Nordhaus, I disagree with him, but at least he does always try to do things in a cost-benefit framework and say, well, there's a negative externality. And so then you'd put in a carbon tax. And Nordhaus' recommended policies are actually pretty moderate compared to what somebody like Krugman is saying. And so, that, yeah, that's a point just to show that Krugman's not even pretending to be an economist anymore. He's just saying, like, oh, climate change is bad, so the government should get rid of power, coal-fired power plants as opposed to, you know, oh well there's a negative externality, let's put a price on emissions and you know, which is a more button down mainstream economist approach.
0: Well, Bob, uh, I certainly appreciate all the work you're, you and uh, both you and Tom Woods are, are out there doing uh, on the podcast, at least. And you know, I, I really enjoyed the book. I highly recommend people like audiobooks. Tom Woods actually narrates the audiobook. That, that's the one I the version I listen to. So I highly recommend checking that out. And before I let you go, why don't you just give one last plug for how people can find the show, the book? I, I mean, I know we snuck it in there a bunch, but why don't you just give, give lo- one last roundup of everything as well as how they can find out about a- any other work that you're doing out there.
1: Okay, sure. So the the, the podcast is at Contra Krugman dot com contra with a c krugman with a k and then the book is contra it's got its own dedicated page and then my, everything about me you can find it consulting by all right
0: bob murphy best of luck with all the with all your work and now you're going to stick around for a quick little bonus segment so if you're one of our patreon subscribers head on over to patreon and uh, you'll get some more questions from bob murphy all right thanks mark take care bob all right, friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with the great Robert Murphy, co-host of the Contra Krugman podcast, along with our good friend Tom Woods. Again, I got to say, I listened to the audio book. It's really fun to hear Tom Woods read it to you. So that's that's the format I prefer. But please do check out the book. Really, it really helps you get together a lot of the arguments that you hear out there because, believe it or not, Krugman has, Paul Krugman has a huge audience, and a lot of people take their economic arguments directly from him. So it's great to have those put together responses that are directly addressing the kinds of things that Paul Krugman says. I think they can really help you in your arguments out there that you're having with people. Uh, Hopefully you're not losing your mind too much on Facebook and that sort of thing. Having these conversations. I prefer real life conversations myself. I find they're much more civil. So that's the route I would recommend less Facebook arguing more real life conversations like the ones we have here on this program. And for more of today's conversation you can head over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash lionsofliberty, where Bob Murphy took questions from our listeners, from our supporters, our members of the Lions of Liberty Pride, our supporters on Patreon. Again, for as little as $5 a month, you can get access to all of the bonus content we do, including this special bonus segment with Bob Murphy. Really interesting stuff in there, so please do check it out. Please do check out the final edition of Candidates of Liberty tomorrow. We're very excited that we were able to bring you this program, able to put in the extra effort to get these interviews out there. Of course, we we are sorry that we couldn't get to a ton of candidates. We got a ton of requests over the last few weeks and at that point, it was really just too difficult to fit people in time-wise, both with our Our life schedules as well as our programming schedule. So um, anybody else out there that didn't get interviewed, I know there are many, many, many of you, hundreds and hundreds of you, uh, you know, hopefully this show comes back in some form. That's all I can say and that will be determined based on the feedback and uh, based on the support we're able to build to continue it. It really is that simple at the end of the day. So please do check out the final edition of Candidates of Liberty tomorrow and check out all the interviews we've done over at lionsofliberty.com slash candidates Of course, be sure to tune back in after that on Wednesday for a very spooky, scary edition of Electric Liberty Land. That's right. It is our Halloween special Brian-hosted a very spooky edition. That's all I'm going to say right now. I don't want to reveal what exactly goes down, but there are several, uh, well, familiar guest appearances to longtime fans of the show. We really had a fun time doing that show. So come on back for that on Wednesday. And of course, Odie wraps things up on Friday with Felony Friday. Until next time, folks. Live long! And live free.